Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, can I thank you particularly for coming this evening on a bank holiday Sunday weekend. Given that it is a bank holiday, I thought we would read a bank holiday psalm together. Now, you may not be aware that there are such things, but actually there are 15 of them in the, in the hymn book of Israel. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, when the Jewish pilgrims were on bank holiday and going up to Jerusalem to worship at the festivals and feasts, they would sing these hymns together as they traveled. So we're going to read one of these songs together tonight. It's Psalm 132. It is different from the other Psalms of Ascent. It's the third last one. Uh, it's also the longest by some distance. You'll be dismayed to know on a night like this. But I do hope that it will touch our hearts and that God will speak to us loudly and clearly through his word this evening. So let's read together Psalm 132. O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David. A sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I will teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her saints will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown on his head will be resplendent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, you must have heard of Aesop, a Greek storyteller famous for his fables. But one of his most perceptive sayings was this. After all is said and done, there's a lot more said than done. We had this on a poster in my student flat a few years ago. 
It was a picture of a hippopotamus yawning. And uh, the, the mantra was that everyone intended to do their turn. Everyone intended to do the bins. Everyone intended to do the dishes. We all said we would at the beginning of each semester. But after all was said and done, there was a lot more said than done. And that motto could be put on almost any office wall, any organizational wall, any uh, strategy, any plan, any, any grand design that we have. We are very good at talking the talk and not quite so good at walking the walk. We know that from our own culture too, don't we? Politicians talk a great game. But in 2017, I don't know if you realize, they were considered to be the least trusted group within our culture, with a trust rating of 17%. Uh, now, just to contextualize that, uh, nurses and doctors scored over, seven, uh, scored over 90%. Uh, the ordinary person in the street scored 65%, which I suppose just goes to show that doctors and nurses don't get out much. But the point, the point is, as humans, we make lots and lots of promises, don't we? We're really good at making promises. We're just not so great at keeping them. Today's psalm contains many promises. I'm sure you noticed that as we read it together. The little phrase, I will, features nine times in the psalm. It's used twice by David and seven times by God himself. This psalm is all about promises, promises for a bank holiday weekend. But before we dig into the text, you'll have noticed um, that the, the, the psalm itself uh, certainly wasn't written by David. Because it begins, O Lord, remember David. So unless David's talking in the third person about himself, it's highly unlikely that the psalm was written by him. It was most likely composed by Solomon, David's son, for the purpose of the dedication of the temple. The structure of the psalm is in three parts. Each of them mentions David, Israel's great warrior king. And the structure of the psalm is built around his name. So you'll notice there in verse 1, we have a mention of David. Then we have a mention of David right in the middle of the psalm in verse 10. And then in the last or second last verse of the psalm, we have a horn uh, growing for David. So let's look at these three sections together. The first section verses 1 to 9, tell us all about David's promises to God. It begins in verse 1 with a plea. Do you notice? O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. Now, David had many hardships in his life. Saul had hunted him like a wild animal for years. And even his own son, Absalom, tried to take the throne away from him. David's first attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, which is really what this psalm is about, was a disaster. They put the Ark in a cart and they were making their way to Jerusalem uh, with great singing and rejoicing, just like the original pilgrims who sang uh, this song would have been doing. 
when the oxen that were pulling the cart stumbled. And Uzzah stuck out a hand to stop the ark from falling off the cart, trying to protect, if you like, God's holy presence. Now, of course, no one was supposed to touch the ark. And God struck Uzzah down, and he lay dead there in the countryside. Now, you read that story in 2 Samuel 6, and it took David three months before he was brave enough to try to bring the ark into Jerusalem again. And so the psalm begins, Lord, remember to credit David for everything he went through for you in his great desire to bring the ark uh, to Jerusalem. And in all his patience and all his hardship, while he was waiting to be the anointed king as Saul tried to hound him from the land. Now, although the idea of reward might seem a bit mercenary to us, perhaps we need to rethink that. Perhaps we are more concerned with what others think about us than we are with what God thinks about us. So how often do you pray for other people? as Solomon potentially prays here. Oh Lord, remember so-and-so for all the hardships that they have been through. Bring them some reward in some way from your greatness and your grace. Perhaps we, would sh perhaps we should actually be more concerned with that concept of heavenly reward for those who have struggled than we are with earthly praise. But sadly, so often, we're very keen on earthly praise and Heavenly reward tends to take a bit of a back seat, doesn't it? But remember this. God knows the trials you are going through and your family and your friends and those who aren't here for a variety of reasons tonight. I was reading some of the names up there on the screen earlier. God remembers all the trials his people go through for him. And in Hebrews, the writer says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and his love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And so the author here, Solomon probably, wanted God to remember David's hardships. And then the author recalls the promises that David made to God. So it's as though, remember these hardships that David uh, has gone through for you, O God, and now remember his, uh, the promises that he made. And there are three parts to the promise that, that David made uh, to God here in this psalm. Firstly, in verses 2 to 5, you discover that David promises a dwelling place for God. Do you notice that there in the text? I will not enter my house or go to my bed or allow sleep to my eyes till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, if we go back to 2 Samuel 7, which is where we get the narrative version of what's going on here, we find David resting from victory against all of his enemies. He's subdued the land. He's taken possession of it. All of his enemies have been driven out. He's beaten the Philistines once and for all. The land has peace. But David felt it was wrong for him to live in a palace in relative luxury well, the dwelling place of God, the ark, was out in the fields somewhere. Ephrathah, the fields of Jar. So David proposes a temple to house the ark. And he makes a promise in verse 2. You'll notice, he swore an oath to the Lord. 
he made a solemn promise to the Lord. Now, it was a good plan, and God liked it. But we discover in 1 Kings 8 and verse 18 that David wasn't going to get to build the temple for the ark to dwell in. It was good that he had it in his heart, God said. He had a good desire. His desires were noble and true and well-intentioned. But there were reasons why it was inappropriate for David to build the house of God. David, you see, had blood on his hands. He was a man of war, not a man of peace. He was also a man who had murdered another man's wife so that he could cover up his own adultery. He was a man whose hands were stained with blood. Now, there's a lesson here for us. We know that David was forgiven of these sins against Uriah and Bathsheba. We know that from Psalm 51. We know it from the story of Nathan the prophet who challenges him. But there were human consequences to pay for sinful actions, even although he was forgiven, you see. There were certain things he couldn't do because of how he had behaved. Now, we're not good at this in the Christian church. Forgiveness is free. Restoration is gloriously possible. But it's not always appropriate to put people back into ministry positions that they were in before, after serious falls. That can be damaging to the kingdom of God. And it's not always loving to put people back into temptation places. And it's not always possible for people to simply be put back into a place to do something because they want to do it, do you see? There were reasons and principles why David wasn't to be that man. You see, the problem for us in all of our desires and promises is that we honestly think that God needs us and nobody else. We're the only ones who could do that. I'm sure David was pretty certain that as the great king of Israel with such a passion for God, a man after God's own heart, we know, surely, surely it was going to be him that was going to be able to build the temple. Surely it would be him. But no. But no. You see, God has others who may be more suitable for certain ministries than you. That's always a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? When God closes the door, when it's time to step down, when it's time to let go, when it's time to accept that it's not going to be you now. Trust God with that. Because as we know, Solomon did a magnificent job. The temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. So that was true for David. His son Solomon, the man of peace, would ultimately build the temple that David had in his heart. So David promised a dwelling place for God. But then he promised a resting place for God. Do you notice in verse 6 to 8, we discover uh, that he says there in verse 8, Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Now here in these verses, uh, verses 5 to 8, we, we discover that, that God is called the mighty one of Jacob. He's called the mighty one of Jacob twice in these verses, actually. It's an unusual name for God, the God of Jacob. And uh, it's only used five times in Scripture, and two of them are here. Because, you see, David wasn't the first 
to desire to build a house for God. He wasn't the first to long for a place where God could come and live with his people. Jacob was. And in Genesis 28, we discover in that great story where Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau, that he slept one night. Do you remember? He became tired on his journey and he looked for somewhere to sleep. There were no premier inns or travel lodges or anything of that nature. So he just had to lie down and stick his head on a stone pillow. Do you remember? And do you remember that he saw that great vision of, of uh, the ladder going into heaven and God communicating and descending to earth? And when he woke, this is what he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. This is none other than, now listen carefully to the words he uses, this is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. And so he makes a promise. If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey I am taking, then the Lord will be my God, And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. Well, it wasn't much of a house, was it? It it was a stone. It was a pillar. But it was an early statement, an early indication of the desire in God's people's heart that he would come and live with them. Do you see? That he would presence himself with them that he would be with them. And now, 900 years later, David is determined not to rest until he finds a place for the mighty one of Jacob, for the Lord and his ark to rest. Now, of course, we must think a moment about the ark. The ark was the symbol of all God was to his people. It contained the Ten Commandments on two tablets inside, along with the rod that Aaron had that burst into life. Uh, These two tablets, of course, Moses, uh, we know, was the first person with a tablet to download data from the cloud. We know that. And he did it there on Sinai. Um, But the law in the tabernacle there was, was covered by the mercy seat. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Even there, God is telling his people something. And the ark said, so much to the people of God. We don't have time to do a tangential exposition on the Ark of the Covenant, you'll be pleased to know. But it was the portable resting place of God's glory. And David wanted to provide a permanent resting place for God's glory. And so as they sang Psalm 132, these pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for the, peace, for the feasts on their bank holiday would remember how the ark had followed that same path so many years before on its way to its resting place. The third part of the promise that David makes to God is the promise of a people for God. Do you notice that there in verse 9? May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy. Now, in Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple in 2 Chronicles 6, he finishes with these same words from Psalm 132, verses 8 and 9. So we know that this psalm was used at the dedication of the temple. As well as a home for God, you see, David desired people who would worship God appropriately in his home. And here they are, they're the priests. 
But do you notice in verses 8 and 9 that David can't deliver on the promises he's making? For the sake of David, your servant, verse 10, do not reject your anointed one. May your priest, verse 9, be clothed with righteousness. May your priest be clothed with righteousness, not I will clothe your priest with righteousness. Do you see that? David couldn't deliver on this. It was his desire, but he couldn't make it happen. Arise, O Lord, and come. You need to do something, Lord. You need to come to your resting place to make it real and to make it vibrant and to make it living. So you see, the holiness and happiness of God's worshippers wasn't something that they could drum up inside themselves any more than we can. By praying, may they be clothed in righteousness and may they sing for joy. David is acknowledging that God needs to do the work of making people righteous and making them joyful. He couldn't deliver on his own desire. But actually, when you think about it, David couldn't deliver on any of his desires or promises, could he? Not really. Not fully, in spite of his best intentions. And neither can you, can you? You make plenty of promises to God. You've made plenty over your Christian life. We've sung a few tonight. I will keep my eyes on you, will you? All the time, 100%, forever, through the rest of your life? No, you won't. You see, we speak better than we are able to deliver all the time. We make promises to God all the time that we're unable to deliver on. We promise God the earth and we deliver a handful of soil. It's the same thing, but not quite what we originally had in mind. And that happens all the time in our lives. And so in the second section of the psalm, God, having been patient, listening to all David's promises to him, knowing that he can't deliver on them, it's as though God says, promises, David, promises. I'll give you promises. You sit back and watch this. And so then, for the second half of the psalm, we have God's promises to David. Now, there are structural similarities between this section and the previous section, but there are also significant differences. The first similarity you'll find in verse 10. It's another plea. But this time the plea isn't remember David. The plea is remember and accept God's anointed one. Suddenly, the language has changed. Some, suddenly, the landscape has changed. Because clearly... The anointed one refers to the present king, in this case, likely Solomon. But something bigger is going on here, isn't it? Because the anointed one, we know, in Jewish literature, is really a kind of shorthand way of saying the Messiah. The one on whom God's spirit dwelt fully and completely. That's what the idea of anointed means. So what comes next, God's promise to David, isn't only about Solomon, God's current anointed one, but about what God would do with Jesus, God's ultimate anointed one, the Messiah. You see, God's promise had a name, and the name of the promise was Jesus. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, all of the promises of God, listen to this, all of the promises of God, Old Testament, New Testament, all of them, find their yes in him. You know that way when you hear something and uh, it's something you've been hoping for and then it finally comes through and you go, yes. You know that feeling? That's Jesus in relation to God's promises. Every time, everyone, yes. They're all found in him. And so when we come to a passage like Acts 17, where Paul is preaching to a pagan culture like ours, it, it, it's very important that we realize that, that it's not the promises that we make to God that matter. It's not the things we give to God that matter. Paul says in Acts 17, as though he himself needed anything. But it's what he gives to us. Because from him we have life and breath and everything else. Do you see the direction of travel there? It's not that we give to God. That's pagan worship. Bring the crops into the fertility God. Go to the temple. Have sex with a temple prostitute and connect with the fertility God. It's about what we give to God. That's Human, that's pagan. Biblical worship is not about what we give to God. It's about recognizing what he gives to us and how dependent we are upon him, you see? So God's promise to David has three parts, just like David's promise to God had three parts. You'll remember just a minute ago, we noticed that David had promised a house for God. But here in verse 12, God promises a house for David. Do you notice that? If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I will teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. In the Netflix drama series, The Crown, there's an act showing the dilemma facing the young Queen Elizabeth in 1952. Some of you may not have seen The Crown, but you might remember the constitutional crisis of 1952, or at least have heard about it. The dilemma was whether the young Queen Elizabeth, just ascended to the throne, should take her husband's name, Philip Mountbatten, and become the house of Mountbatten, or should she keep her father's name, and become the house of Windsor. Now you know how that ended. Here David says to God, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. A house not made of bricks and mortar, gold and silver I'm going to build you a house that will last forever I'm going to build you a royal house I'm going to build you a dynasty it's going to be called the house of David look at verses 11 and 12 
The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? So here, God's making a promise to David that he's going to build him a dynasty, a royal house that will last forever if, if his sons keep the covenant. Do you know anything about David's sons? Have you read the history of the kings of Israel? David's sons didn't keep the covenant. So they didn't keep the throne. They lost the throne. We know that. The kingdom became divided. They ended up in captivity. The throne went. But despite the disobedience of David's sons, God's promise stands firm, you see. For one of David's descendants did keep the covenant. And that's why when we open the New Testament at Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse we read in the New Testament says this. Now, if the hairs on the back of your neck aren't tingling at this point, then either you're asleep or you're not listening to what I'm trying to say. Matthew 1, verse 1, after 490 years of silence, Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But you couldn't make it up, could you? Jesus is the son of David who will sit on the throne forever and ever because he kept the covenant, do you see? God took the best of David's promises and made them even better. Expanded them into a global community. Secondly, David promised to choose a resting place for God to dwell in. But in verses 13 and 14... God promises to choose a resting place for himself. And that promise is to make his own people his eternal resting place. Look at there, verse 13. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. God has chosen the place where he will rest forever where his presence will, will eternally dwell. And guess what? We're it. It's us. Not just us. But all of his people from all of time in history. Because God loves his people. He's called his people. He's chosen his people. He's united his people in Christ. The people of God. Zion in the Bible are God's ultimate dwelling place. Zion, you see, not just the physical city of Jerusalem on Mount Zion, but the heavenly Zion, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, where God's Old and New Testament people together are his temple, his dwelling place. Do you remember? We could never really build a house for God, could we? Jacob's little pillar wasn't much of a house for God. 
And when compared to God's majesty and glory, Solomon's majestic temple and all its gilded splendor was still really on the same level as Jacob's pillar. Just had a bit more paint and gold plate. Just another stone in the ground, really. In Isaiah 66, God says to his people, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? If we look at Acts 17 again, we will find that God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Although he's not far from every one of us. By the way, this room isn't the sanctuary. I'm sorry if you call it that. I, I don't know what your tradition is here. But it's not, you know. This room isn't any more holy than your living room. Or your kitchen. Or your car. Or your bathroom. Because God doesn't dwell in spaces and places like that anymore. Do you know where he dwells now? In you. In you. He dwelt with us symbolically through the ark in the temple. He dwelt with us physically through the incarnation of Jesus. He dwells with us spiritually now through the Holy Spirit. And he will dwell with us ultimately in the new heaven and the new earth. David thirdly promised a people for God who would give him righteous praise. But in verse 15 and 16, God promises to provide his people with eternal salvation and joy. You see, David's promise for a priesthood that would praise God as God deserved to be praised was doomed to failure, wasn't it? Because we cannot praise him as we ought. But in verses 15 and 16, do you notice? God promises to provide his people with eternal salvation and joy. I will clothe her priests with salvation. Not may your priests be clothed with righteousness. Do you see the longing on David's side? He wants it to happen, but he can't make it happen. Look at the mirror there in God's promise. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her saints will ever sing for joy. Once again, God trumps David's promise. The priests aren't just clothed in righteousness, which David longed for in verse 9, but because righteousness is only one aspect of salvation. Now they're clothed fully with salvation, do you see? The fullness of God's salvation. They don't just sing for joy, as David longed for in, in verse 9. They ever sing for joy. The words are intensified in the, in the Hebrew uh, language. And it's all of them. All of them. Now, do you grasp the significance of 1 Peter 2, 9, 10? You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are these priests clothed in righteousness. We are, we are them. We are the fulfillment of this. We are the, the saints, God's covenant people, who ever sing for joy. 
And as we sit here on a lovely sunny evening in Hamilton in May in 2018, we are the latest descendants of David's great dynasty. We are. And that's the climax of the whole psalm. God's promise to us. All of these promises come together and are fulfilled in heaven, where Christ reigns as king and where God will dwell with us forever. Because this psalm, as I'm sure you've already realized, finds its fullest echo in Revelation. Right at the end there, when we read what John saw, then I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you see how all those longings of the ages are now so gloriously fulfilled in heaven? And in verses 22 and 27, we read, John did not see certain things. The things he didn't see were as important as the things he did see. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. God himself is the dwelling place of his people, do you see? And his people is the dwelling place of God. The glory of God gives, gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Nothing impure will ever enter in. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So Psalm 132, our bank holiday psalm, tells us that God is the great promise keeper. And you'll notice there are two types of clothing handed out on Judgment Day. We find them in Revelation 21, but we also find them here in Psalm 132, foreshadowed. Did you notice them? I will clothe her priests with salvation, and I will clothe his enemies with shame. Salvation clothes for the people of God, and shame clothes for the enemies of God. Those who are clothed in Jesus' righteousness will enter the, the city and receive all God's promises. But those who are clothed in shame never will. So the question tonight is, which wardrobe will your clothes come from? Will they come from the wardrobe of the righteousness of Christ? Or you, will, you, will you wear the shame of your own rebellion against God forever? That's all right here in Psalm 132. The original pilgrims sang the song on their way to an earthly Jerusalem for their feast days. As followers of Jesus, we sing it on our way to the heavenly Jerusalem for a much bigger party, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, make your promises. You won't be able to help yourself, neither will I. Sing, I will keep my eyes on you. 
you're well-intentioned. We all are. And like David, it's good that we have it on our heart. But you'll never be able to keep them fully. Never. No matter how often you sing them, you sing, we sing things like, I choose to be holy. No, you don't. Not all the time. This is my desire. No, no it isn't. Not all the time. That's why I'm far more comfortable singing songs about God's promises to me. But remember, it's not all about you and your ability to keep promises because you can't keep them. It's about your promise-keeping God. Fix your eyes on him. To him be the glory. Now we're going to sing our final hymn, Mighty to Save.